You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children and still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders and under our beds and in our closets. And together we'll realize, well, that's pretty that's dark. Pretty dark. I've had three cups of coffee. I can kind of tell, to be honest with you. I haven't had that much coffee in a single day in years. Is it just you felt like you needed the boost? Yeah, I was. I've been super sleepy. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I'm living out a um a personal nightmare mm-hmm. currently. Yeah. Um, because I have house painters on my property. They're in mm-hmm. every window, looking in every room Miserable. every day for over a week now. Miserable. And I think I'm gonna go crazy. He, listener, he was describing it to me on the phone the other night, and I just kept like truly nightmarish. Just you can't go anywhere to be alone because Mm-mm. people are outside your house everywhere. Mm-mm. Yeah. Yeah. And Horrific, it's different. Really. It's different from even like working on a movie or like going out in public because this is my home. Mm-hmm. This is where I live and I go to get away from all of You're that. You're living in a in a fishbowl right now. I do. Oh my God. <laughs> You're right. You're so right. It's not a comfortable feeling. Just ask our Lord and Savior Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. I guess. <laughs> Welcome to That's Pretty Dark, everybody. My name's Christian. That's Kaylin, and today we're covering a real doozy. Yeah, we're talking about <laughs> The Brave Little Toaster. It's not just a B-movie. And for the first time, actually, Christian and I are kind of teaming up on a movie night episode, which hasn't really happened other than kind of with Pinocchio. No, I mean, yeah. You know, this is kind of a new a new thing that mm-hmm. we're trying. You're taking the lead on part one, and I'm sort of running with it on part two. Yeah. Which, speaking of, this is two parts. And it's an exciting two-parter. I'm not looking forward to watching this multiple times. <laughs> I'm really not. Listener, if this wasn't your favorite movie, I assure you it wasn't mine either. But that does not mean we cannot enjoy learning <laughs> about it. And um, yeah, honestly, we're going to be doing a lot of inner child work here today. So <laughs> let's plug into the adventure, shall we? Oh, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's the tagline for this movie. Mm. Plug into the adventure. Great message for children. So the IMDb summary, a group of dated appliances embark on a journey to the city to find their master after being abandoned in a cabin in the woods. Okay, that's it. My additions are sentient appliances, mm-hmm. and um, this movie is unexpectedly depressing as f- Yeah. <laughs> so, well, um, <laughs> the most, probably the most existential thing that we've tackled so far. This is true. And that that's going to continue to pop up. And we're going to learn today maybe some of the reasons why that is. These sentient appliances, a radio named Radio, a heated blanket named Blanky, a vacuum named Kirby, a lamp named Lampy, <laughs> and lastly, a toaster named Toaster. Very original. We're going to get toasty with the most toasty mm. here tonight, y'all. And this is an adaptation of a book called The Brave Little Toaster. A bedtime story for small appliances, mm-hmm. which Kaylin's going to tell us all about here in a second. I am, um, But I looked this up, too, and I tried to buy a copy of this book, but it's out of print, I guess, because when you look online, it's either completely sold out or it's going for anywhere between $200 and $500. I, don't, I just don't think it was in print for a very long time. But there's a lot. There's a lot to that story. Yeah. But before it could become a book, it was inspired by something very grim. Yes. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> uh, this book is a modernized reimagining of a little-known grim fairy tale called The Bremen Town Musicians. Aha. Uh-huh. This book is not 
a modernized reimagining of the grim fairy tale called The Brave Little Tailor. <laughs> Which you I'm and so I glad you could clear up this Google mystery. Had a discussion about. Yeah, we've already argued about this um, listener, and despite, I'm, I'm pleased to say I was right. <laughs> no, I I wasn't even wrong. Okay, listen. Despite what the Brave Little Toaster fandom wiki would have you believe, mm-hmm. was my next line. Uh huh. Yeah. So the Brave Little Tailor is a completely different story. Mm-hmm. The one about the tailor, known more commonly as the Gallant Tailor, is about a tailor who kills seven flies in one blow. And then leads many other characters to believe he actually killed seven men in one blow. Mm. Which leads him along a path to fame, fortune, and power with nary a single consequence. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. Nary. When first we practice to deceive. Not for him. Except for him. He gets everything he wants. <laughs> Fairy tales don't always have morals, boys and girls. No, they don't. Them and they's. Yeah, that's, honestly, that's a common misconception. They don't. They're not they all really like don't. parables with like a moral... Right. Uh, Moral, you know, learning curve. Mm-hmm. It often is just to show you how scary mm-hmm. and difficult and dangerous the world mm-hmm. actually is. We learned this, yeah, also with Pinocchio. Yeah. Pinocchio is just a very modern fairy tale. Right. So the Bremen Town Musicians, the one it's based on, is about a group of animals who meet each other along the road to Bremen. Mm-hmm. Each of them is getting older and are therefore less capable of fulfilling their purposes of serving their individual masters. Big yikes. In other words, their worth is running quite low. Mm-hmm. The donkey can't work in the fields, so his master is going to turn him out. Like let him go out to pasture? I guess let him go out to pasture. Yeah. The dog can't run fast or far enough to hunt, so his master is going to have him killed. Mm. The cat can't control the rodents on the property enough anymore, so his mistress is going to drown him. My God. And the cock is simply going to fulfill his final purpose. Company is coming, so the bird will be cooked for dinner. Don't like that. So when they come to him along the road, he's crowing. And when they ask him why his cries are enough to pierce bone and marrow, Mm -hmm. he essentially tells them his neck is going to be wrung that evening. So he's just crowing while he still can. Oh, my God. I know. It's so sad. Like aging is a reality, but he's like, I'm just he's basically like, I'm just doing this while I still can. And that's why it hurts. And it sounds so painful because this is my last night doing this. Not like that at all. So the whole point of the story, they're all going to Bremen to form a band of musicians. And that's what's going to give them purpose, hopefully. Mm -hmm. They'll find work. They'll make people happy. Very interesting that they're finding the end of their life and art is the thing that's going to give them fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? They worked all their life at this, these things that they, you know, were meant to do in some way. That's really probably more of the like allegory there is how aging people can turn to Mm -hmm. things like that that are more fulfilling than like just hard labor. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Wow. And ultimately, they stop for the night at a house in the woods that would be abandoned, except that it's occupied by a group of robbers. The robbers are feasting and the animals are starving, so the animals work together to frighten all the men out of the home where they then reside and eat all the food. Gotcha. And so this ends up as something of a ghost story. Like, the animals are still there to this day, and no one can really enter the home without being attacked and terrorized by the monster that dwells there. Because that's the story coming from the robbers. They were attacked by something, mm-hmm. and they had something, to flee the an home. An entity that they an don't entity. know what it is. Right. Yeah. But we know, because we have the secret knowledge of this fairy tale, 
that it's just a group of animals trying to live out their best days at the end of their life. Aww. Honestly, this had way more of an allegory, moral sort of spin than it, I expected from there that. There is more, yeah, <laughs> I guess, than you'd expect. And after we just said, there's no, there's no moral. <laughs> um, but it's really not a moral. It's just... No, no. It's more... It's just a, a representation of, of the human condition. Right. Of you will age. You will one day not be very useful. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have to find something that gives you purpose at the end of your days. And Man. what that is uh, up to you. And I would say that's a... That's a lesson that anybody can take of any age and any ability level. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because if you don't find the thing that gives you purpose, eventually you're just going to be <laughs> put out to pasture and you're not going to feel <laughs> worthwhile anyway. Or you're so, going to be shot or drowned or cooked for dinner. Yeah. You might as well find what gives you purpose in the meantime. Of the um, the ATU, the Arne Thompson Uther Index that we talked about before. Yeah. This is an ATU 130, 130. And apparently it's the animals in the night quarters is the name of this ATU. Okay. And it's of German origin. Listener, if you're not familiar with that, we covered that in one of our Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes. Yes. Um, because we do find ourselves coming upon these fairy tale narratives or these themes uh, pretty frequently. That was the Sorcerer's Apprentice episode. I think so, yeah. If I'm not mistaken. And I'm going to read in full the fairy tale. For Patreon bonus content. Yes. So you can go check out patreon.com slash TPD podcast. You guys have been asking or mentioning Christian has a nice voice and I couldn't agree with you more. Mm, thank and you. And so for some of our <laughs> Patreon content, Thanks. he's going to do some readings. Ladies. And I think that's so exciting. Mm, boys. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to throw it back to you, Kaylin. Okay. Tell us about Thomas Man, Dish. I feel like my energy is just all over the place. It's so, it's so off. And it, I think part of it is because of this film. I think... I really didn't expect it to hit me as hard as it did. Yeah. I've, I've had that happen with several things that we've covered, but this one, I had truly and completely blocked out so much of it. I don't know if it's just straight up repressed trauma. Well, I'll go ahead and say too, if I did see this, I don't remember it. This is one of the ones I'm claiming I didn't see. Yeah. And see, I know for a fact that I saw it multiple times. It was another one that I believe I rented along with We're Back at the uh, movie gallery. Mm. So I... I don't know. There were some visuals that like struck a chord, but for the most, the, the plot and everything, all of the, I guess, deeper themes. Yeah. It felt like I was seeing it, you know, for the first time since it was probably the first time since I was four or five years old. Mm -hmm. And while I think I did watch it multiple times back then, I had not seen it even one time since then. And now I kind of remember why. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's really hard to rewatch. Yeah. And I really don't want to. <laughs> Sorry about that. I mean, I, I feel like, but I, I now have read enough about it that I understand it a little better. And like we were saying earlier, I hope that that helps you listener to work through your, any trauma that you have attached to it. Because yeah. despite, you know, some of the individuals behind it being rather depressed, I do think that knowing their story helps me heal a little bit and helps me respect and understand what they were making that much more. I'm excited to learn. Okay. Tell us all about it. Um, so like you said, you, you mentioned the book, but the Grim Fairy Tale inspired a novella actually called The Brave Little Toaster by renowned sci-fi and horror author, playwright and poet Thomas Michael Dish. And I could probably do a whole episode on just Dish right now, but I'll try to break down his life for you in the same spirit that I've done for some other creators, since we're all about getting inside their heads and understanding what was going on in their lives that might have inspired the things that they created. Right. So keep in mind, it's from his thoughts that this entire tale kind of came about. Better be. 
Otherwise, it's plagiarism. You're right. Speaking of plagiarism, AI. <laughs> oh, God. We had so many tangents to go on <laughs> today. Speaking of appliances. <laughs> Speaking of planned obsolescence. I digress. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yowza. So Thomas Dish moved to New York from Iowa when he was just 17 years old. He made ends meet any way he could by working as an extra in operatic productions, working in bookstores, and at a newspaper as well. Mm. And I'm going to give a trigger warning here, friends, honestly, really for Thomas's whole story, if you're triggered by suicide. But I do think it's strangely relevant to our brave little tale. So I do want to share this part of his story as well. Mm. He attempted suicide at the age of 18 by gas oven, but he survived because he wasn't able to pay his gas bill. Oh, my God. Wow. At this point, he went into the armed forces briefly, and uh, Wikipedia also says that his incompatibility with this lifestyle led to a three-month stint in a mental hospital. Hmm. And I really don't blame him for that because I feel like I would also be very incompatible with that lifestyle. (laughs) It would be rough. Yeah. It's rough on everyone, but maybe some more than others. But from there, he went back to working several odd jobs from copywriting to architecture, Um, he'd gone to school for like draftsmanship and he had, he was like top of his class and aced like an entrance exam for an architecture school and all this stuff. But he kind of pivoted away from that and, you know, worked all these writing adjacent jobs. He also worked briefly as a mortuary assistant. Wow. He eventually began attending night school at NYU where he studied creative writing and utopian fiction. Hmm. And when he sold his first short story to a magazine for, I think like a couple hundred dollars, He dropped out of NYU and continued working some of those day jobs to fuel his nighttime writing habit, as he called it. And then... I get it, yeah. (laughs) Thankfully for him, the magic happened. As I continue to learn from Wikipedia, Thomas Dish's acclaimed science fiction novels The Genocides, Camp Concentration, and 334 are considered major contributions to the new wave science fiction movement. Hmm. In 1996, his book, The Castle of Indolence, was nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award. And in 1999, Dish won the nonfiction Hugo Award for The Dreams Our Stuff is Made of, a meditation on the impact of science fiction on our culture. All right. As well as the Michael Broad Award for Light Verse. So he's super accomplished. He's done well. I mean, he did. He did very well. And I have to think, based on the ideas that he was writing to, that he actually himself might appreciate what we're doing on that's pretty dark. Mm. He because he had so much to say about society and he had so much social commentary. But I really like the combination of like sci-fi and social commentary and poetry. I think it's a very interesting combo and that was kind of what he spent his life doing. Yeah. The sci-fi that I've read that I've enjoyed fits right in with that. For sure. Yeah. The stone gods specifically. Oh. It was notorious uh, at South. Everybody was talking about it. When I was like, going to take a science fiction class, Yeah, everybody was like, oh, you're going to read The Stone That's the Gods. book that you need to read. Who, yeah. Who's that by? I'll look it up. Just curious. I'll look it up. I have a copy, but I don't know. I don't know where it is at the moment. Stone Gods is by Jeanette Winterson. Okay. When did it come out? Just out of curiosity. 2007. Oh, okay. So it's more recent. Yeah. So maybe yeah. she was inspired by Dish. Who knows? Could be. But he kind of... You know, he came up in the 60s. That's when he was really coming to prominence in this world and when he started to write to these ideas in the 90s and be awarded for them. Mm -hmm. And in terms of nonfiction, he also wrote theater and opera criticism for The New York Times, The Nation, and other periodicals. And he published several volumes of poetry as Tom Dish. So he also was publishing poetry at this time. Nice. He lived with his partner, Charles Naylor, and they kept both a New York City apartment and a suburban home for over three decades. Hmm. And 
Dish himself was openly gay from the late 60s, but he kept his sexuality fairly private, and he disclaimed in an interview once that while he was gay, he didn't really write specifically LGBTQ fiction. Yeah, sure. There was some interesting commentary on gender in the novella, for example, and we'll we'll get to some of that, I think, in part two, but that's all but glossed over in the film, aside from just Toaster's gender kind of being ambiguous, sort of. Right. But... Being from the American South as we are, I can't help but wonder if the discrimination or prejudice or maybe some internalized homophobia from his Midwestern roots led to his depression early on. Oh, I am. I wouldn't be surprised at all. I, I, I can't say that for certain, obviously. But regardless, I'm glad he was able to find a home and hope in New York and mm-hmm. with other creatives as well. This is super relevant and good timing for us because we just visited Harper Lee's gravesite. Yeah, we did. In uh, Monroeville. Mm -hmm. You know, she spent probably half her life in New York hanging out with Truman Capote. It's where the creators go to Mm -hmm. create. Because he, you know, he's, we said from Midwest, but he bounced back and forth between like Mm -hmm. New York and the suburbs. Mm -hmm. So pretty interesting stuff. After his partner's death in 2005, uh, Dish had to abandon his house and he was also fighting eviction attempts from his rent control department in New York hmm. and became steadily more depressed after that. But interestingly, he wrote on a live journal account from April 2006 until his death uh, two years later. Live journal, wow. He did eventually take his own life, hmm. but he was writing on live journal up until he died and he was posting poetry and journal entries. And that was to me just like super chilling and like a weird timeline overlap because in that time frame is when I was you know, in my own early internet and writing days, a lot of which being on live journal. So mm-hmm. just kind of, kind of strange, but he had a lot of like interesting and kind of radical ideas. And some people have said offensive and I haven't read the rest of his body of work. And so I can't intelligently comment on those things or his views in general, but I can say that the tone of the film and the brave little toaster comes through as being really sad, generally speaking. Yeah. And as soon as I learned his story, I had to assume that he was somewhere at the root of that sadness. That comes through. That uh, mm-hmm. that just shines through like a yeah. black light yeah. all the way through this story and this movie. It really revealing does. Many um, I read a couple of reviews of his work and a live journal blog by author John Schofstall mm-hmm. um, had this to say, and I really liked it as a commentary on some of his his writing. John said, although I hesitate to use phrases like the triumph of the human spirit about so dark and cynical a writer as Dish, one of the characteristics of his writing is the fascinating, complicated, and even lovable characters who inhabit the dystopias he creates, who live, work, and love in them. Mm. Humanity, Dish seems to say, persists and thrives, whatever disastrous society individuals may find themselves in. Wow. The major thing of importance in the lives of individuals will always be their relations with other people for good or ill. Hmm. Obviously, this has just as much relevance today as it did throughout Dish's career. Yeah. And I think it's kind of, uh, it's also fitting of The Brave Little Toaster because to me, what I remembered most from when I watched it were the characters and not so much, you know, the world they lived in or the terrible things that happened to them, thankfully. (laughs) Man, that is powerful. Jeez. I really hate that Dish struggled the way that he did in life, but I do hope that he is at peace now with Mr. Naylor, somewhere very lovely. And I'll just take this as an opportunity to remind you that if you're struggling with depression or suicide or suicidal thoughts, you're not alone. And I would also direct you to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention at AFSP.org. 
They have several hotlines and resources, and I promise, I know that sounds campy, and it's probably the last thing that you want to do if you're in a space like that, but it's worth it to get help, and they do know how to mm-hmm. provide it. Just talk to somebody, somebody that it you trust. Yeah, sure. It doesn't have to be that, but- They'll do what they can. Your life is valuable, listener. Yeah. Every single life is important, especially yours. <laughs> yeah. we. I, I can't say that I've ever been actively suicidal, but uh, I've had some dark thoughts. I yeah, have been in some me too. dark We've places. We've both been in dark places. Where you you feel like you're better off dead. Yeah. I've been there. I've been and there. And hearing Dish's story and hearing that there was an attempt when he was much younger and then he kind of lived a life at, and mm. went back to it at the end. Yeah, it's tough. It, it just tells a story of demons that he really couldn't shake. And I, like I said, I have a feeling those have a lot to do with the society that he lived in. But Sometimes the world is just unrelenting. Yeah. It just doesn't let you go. But we're here for you, listener. Man, is this what you were telling me that you were going to tell me about? Yes. This okay, is some yeah. of I, it, yeah. I had a, I actually just from watching the movie, I had my uh, yeah. presumptions. I was giving some uh, disclaimers to Christian on the phone the other night because I was like, I don't. And I was like, don't tell me. I didn't really know exactly how to approach it because it's really, it, it is a triggering topic. And obviously yeah. um, it's difficult for a lot of people to hear, but I do think that it does bleed into the art in this case. Sure. Yeah. No, a lot of the greatest artists have been suicidal. Yeah. Sad, but true. It's quote unquote taboo, but it doesn't need to be. We should be able to talk about it. We should. You know, I just don't want to. It's one of those things. Trigger anyone that struggles. Mental health awareness. What is it? Green ribbon. Green is the color of mental health awareness. Is it? Yep. Okay. If therapy didn't work, there's somebody out there who is a good therapist for you. That's true. Got to keep trying. That's a that's an important message. Also, Isn't, they're not they're not all created equal. You know. Yeah, but we. I promise, listener, we will get. Uh, we will. Spend time on happier things, but um, this is just as true as anything else. So it needs to be shared. If you know this movie, you know <laughs> how heavy it is. See, this, that's the thing. I never, I'd never seen this movie, but it's one of the ones that anytime I would have this conversation about the dark media from childhood, yeah. inevitably, the people I would talk to would say, yes. the brave little toaster. For sure. Um, so I think most people expect it to an extent. This is maybe one of the most notorious films that we ever, ever talk about. I think so too. So all of that to say, now you kind of know his story. Mm-hmm. The Brave Little Toaster novella was originally published in the August 1980 issue of the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. Mm-hmm. It was not explicitly a kids' magazine, which kind of gives me uh, courage vibes because it wasn't explicitly a kids' show. Yeah, but the story was written in the style of a children's fable, and you might be surprised to learn uh, it was met with critical acclaim even at the time. <laughs> Quoting from again Wikipedia, it was one of the most popular science fiction and fantasy stories of the early 1980s, and nominated for both a Hugo Award and a Nebula Award for Best Novella. It also won a Locus Award, a Cyan Award, and British SF Association Award. That gives me so much hope because you you know the children's quote unquote children's stories I write are mm-hmm. not necessarily childish. No, they're not childish at all. They're fact. heavier, <laughs> and I think it comes from all this stuff. You write dark children's media, yeah. But I find it perpetually uh, difficult to find mm-hmm. homes for my stories. And his found one. Places that want to publish my if stories. If this can find a home, I guarantee you any any of yours can. Thank you. I think the interesting thing about this, though, is that he was using like very common, not even kids, you know, it's not like they're children's toys, right? Like, well, we'll get to that story later. No, they're just household appliances. But right, they're, they're just appliances. And yeah. so they were just common and known to children. They were, they were recognizable, but they weren't... Yep. 
you know, I, I don't know. I have a, I have issue with the whole thing being called a children's story because the themes really aren't. It's only childish in the sense that like talking animals typically indicates exactly a children's story. Yeah. If you ask anybody that's seen, what is it? Uh, Watership Down. <laughs> oh. They know that's not true. Animation is not just for children. Uh, in terms of the novella, though, I think that we're going to spend some time like going back and forth between that and the film once we get into part two. Right. But I will tell you that they apparently only used four lines of dialogue from the novella in the final film. <laughs> Screenplay co-writer Joe Ramped, who had previously worked with Tim Burton on Frankenweenie, oh, yeah. went on to work on the stories for Oliver and Company, The Rescuers Down Under, Beauty and the Beast, mm. and both of the sequels for The Brave Little Toaster said, I see it as a jumping off point. I try to maintain fidelity to the original material and spirit while, as that one quote of Walt Disney suggests, exploring the possibilities of entertainment. Mm. We really see that as a storyman's job to get as much entertainment as possible. You can veer away from the material, but sometimes you'll break the essence of what the story is if you go too far away. Right. So you have to go to the edge and come back. And clearly, uh, that was man who knew what he was talking about. Yeah. Uh, as most of these creators are, we will find. Um, and I'm very excited to share that with you because like I said, I learned things about kind of the Disney Pixar origin stories that I had not realized previously. And listener, you'll be able to tell all your friends exactly how and why it is when they wonder <laughs> one random night when you're just drinking beers in your yeah. yard or something. This is what I do. I listen to podcasts on the way to functions just so I have talking points. Yeah, we've so, said that before. Yeah, we are, we should, are proud to be that for you, listener. Was, that's pretty dark as your, uh, your talking point of reference for <laughs> the evenings that you feel just socially a bit less enthused it's very helpful for me personally yeah. the research that i have take with me you think i should go outside and start talking to these house painters about yes they probably wouldn't bother you anymore to be honest they'd probably be <laughs> they, like if you get that kid talking me. he won't shut up <laughs> they don't bother me no they're they're super nice they're nice people <laughs> i will say though there is a funny note um from the novella I found it funny anyway because I personally had a lot of issue with the film and the way that electricity is portrayed and just the general <laughs> unsafeness oh, of it all. I have notes about that. We will yeah. get there in part two. But as a teaser for that, I'm going to share. Vacuum is not a lawnmower. It's not. Um, it's a lawnmower. Batteries are unsafe in general for children. I, but uh, No, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get, to it. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. Okay. But as a teaser for that, uh, I found it really kind of sweet and funny that dish did include sort of a disclaimer to children who might be reading his story that they should not be playing with electricity. Yeah. He said, but before any of the small appliances who may be listening to this tale should begin to think that they might do the same thing, let them be warned, in all caps, electricity is very dangerous. <laughs> Never play with old batteries. Never put your plug in a strange socket. And if you're in any doubt about the voltage of the current where you are living, ask a major appliance. <laughs> That's so great. Oh my God. It's so lemony snicket. I it love that so, so much. Because it's like, it's not shying away from the fact that it is dark and dangerous, but yeah. it's, it's also giving kind of a warning. Um, and it's in sort of that prose style where you're, he's speaking to the little appliances and telling mm -hmm. them to speak to a major appliance. So he stays within that characterization. But oh, that, that's that like whimsical intuition that you kind of have to build if you're going to write mm -hmm. children's stories. Yeah. In marketing, you think of it as like a profile of somebody that's going to mm -hmm. be eventually seeing your ad or like buying your product or whatever, mm -hmm. like the consumer. It's kind of the same thing in children's media. You're imagining the kids that will be yeah. reading it. It, and I think we could take that in a lot of directions, but I think that that has almost reached a fever pitch today because nowadays 
they wouldn't dream of putting some things on the screen for children to see that are in this movie. Right. For even to be a visual. Absolutely. You know, as a suggestion for children, right? They are we are almost hyper aware of that now. Yeah. I mean, did you find the the note about how when they re-released the DVD version, they had to edit a frame? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, we can say what it is, I guess. But yeah. there was um a woman on the the TV character. Um, and she's wearing like shells or something. Well, stars. She was wearing oh, stars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To indicate just being nude. Yeah. And so they had to later give her an actual top to cover up her, her mm-hmm. starred breasts. Yeah. They, I mean. It's just things like that. The, yeah. The, the visuals that these kids were coming up with. And this is the stuff that we run into all the time with right. this era. But that's not even including like going the and grabbing an old car battery. Underwater. Yeah, all of yeah. that kind of thing. That's more what I'm thinking of. I cannot wait to break down oh, Toaster's man. Nightmare in the we Woods. We have so much to get into. People are yelling at us because they're like, stop telling us what you're going to tell us and just tell us what you're telling us so you can tell us what you're going to tell us later. teasing me. <laughs> are we titillating you? Are we? I'm titillated. So Disney actually bought the rights for the film, it's a Brave Little Toaster, in 1982. Cue gasps from our listeners because this wasn't a Disney film, right? Um, don't worry, I will explain. Yeah, that. I've been a little bit confused too. Yeah, it's confusing. I don't blame you. I, it's, it's I read a, very a little confusing, bit of that. It's a very confusing process in that time frame. Am I wrong by calling it Disney's bastard child? Sort of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're you're right. Okay. You're not. No, sorry. You're not wrong. I'm not sort wrong. of right. Double negative. Triple positive. Yeah. The d- <laughs> The double negative is triple positive. But yeah, it has a lot of Disney ties that I'm about to to discuss. And like you said, it was published also as a book in its own right. And that came out in uh, May of 1986. Sweet. Though Dish had said that he was unable to publish it as a children's book at first, you know, when he was putting it out in the magazine in 82, Mm. because publishers thought that the concept of talking appliances was too far-fetched. Oh, my God. And like we keep on promising and teasing, here's where our production story really gets interesting. Listener, you might have seen that one meme about Pixar that's like, what if toys had feelings? What if monsters had feelings? What if fish had feelings? <laughs> Leading up to what if feelings had feelings right. uh, when Inside Out was released. Yeah, of course. You might also be thinking to yourself, The Brave Little Toaster predates John Laster and Pixar's first journey into inanimate feelings, which was Toy Story. Mm-hmm. And you'd be right about that. What was my first thing I texted you? I said, yes. tell me that this is not just Toy Story. I Prove mean, me from, wrong. From the opening frames, I felt like I was in Andy's house. Then I read that many of the Pixar people worked on this movie. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, there you go. Exactly. But let's back up for a second. We've been in the 80s where this story was released. But let's back up just briefly to the 1970s. Happy to. I love the 70s, <laughs> Thank man. You. Thanks for indulging me. Man, I've been watching Dark Shadows. Mm. Yeah, you're happy I'm back in space. I'm back in the late 60s, early <laughs> 70s. It's so good. So if you're a fan of animation, you might be familiar with the California Institute of the Arts or CalArts yep. um, and their famed animation programs. Mm-hmm. If you're not familiar with that, prepare to have your minds blown. Um, and while I was familiar with this legendary class of animators, I didn't fully realize before doing this research that the CalArts story is yet another product of Walt Disney's imagination. Not surprising. In a 2014 Vanity Fair article by Sam Kashner, the beginnings of this program are detailed beautifully. Um, So I'm going to pull some quotes and go read that if you're interested in it, because it is 
fascinating. It's really cool as a fan of a lot of the things that came from it. Hmm. In the early 30s, Disney had sent several of his animators to study at the Chouinard Art Institute in Los Angeles because he wanted classically trained artists and he had maintained a keen interest in the art school. After discovering that it was having financial difficulties, he pumped money into it and sought to include it in his grand plan for a city of the arts. A city of the arts. After Chouinard merged with the Los Angeles Conservatory of Music in 1961, Disney was able to realize his vision. He would build a single school devoted to the arts, incorporating Chouinard and the conservatory, and he would call it the California Institute of the Arts, nicknamed CalArts. Nice. Much of his funds went to a charitable trust when he passed, and much of those funds went to the school. So they, he had left a lot of money to the school. And mm-hmm. while the school opened in 1970, the character animation program, really the program he had dreamed of, began in 1975. I'll now list off a bunch of animation legends who studied at CalArts in the 70s. This includes John Lasseter, who we all know from Pixar fame and later some uh, problematic behavior, but we have to talk about him because he's <laughs> yeah, part of all to. of these stories. Got to. Glenn Keane, legendary Disney animator. We've already brought him up a couple times and he will mm-hmm. continue to be part of the Disney stories that we tell. Um, Tim Burton. Yeah, buddy. Who came onto the scene just a year into the program's run in 1976. Mm-hmm. John Musker, Brad Bird, who, by the way, had been writing to one of the nine old men, Matt Call, from the age of seven. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was so great. Just lifelong obsession. Yes. I dig it. Uh, Michael Giamio, Gary Truesdale, Henry Selick, Michael Ooh, yeah. Peraza, uh, and two of the first women in the program, Leslie Margolian and Nancy Beeman. We're going to talk about Henry Selick twice. Oh, we're going to talk about him a lot, probably. I hope so. He's in, he's involved in a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And he had a penchant for the darkness, um, apparently, mm-hmm. from what I learned today. Oh, yeah. But this was just a condensed list of all the people that were involved at CalArts in the 70s. And I'm really glad we're getting to talk about this because, like I said, I think many of these names will continue to pop up for us. A story that was included in this Vanity Fair article that just made me smile, uh, John Musker, uh, one time he said he accompanied John Lasseter and his girlfriend at the time and a few other CalArts students on a trip to Disneyland. And they sat down at the table. So he said, I remember sitting around at a table at lunchtime and Sally, which was uh, Lasseter's girlfriend, said, wow, isn't this great? Just think someday this park is going to be filled with the characters that you guys are going to create. And I was like, get out of here. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> She couldn't have been more on the nose with that observation. And that is just the coolest thing for me to think about. It's incredible. Wow. Who knew? She did. She knew. Uh, In November 2012, so this is a little bit dated and the article was from 2014, so even still, Hmm. uh, the Los Angeles Times reported that directors who had been students in the Cal Arts animation programs had generated more than $26 billion at the box office since 1985. Yeah. So this doesn't even include <laughs> Brave Little Sister, as it shouldn't, but we'll get to the release notes of that. <laughs> too. How much of that was Tim Burton? <laughs> <laughs> a lot. But obviously John Laster had had raked in his dollars as well. And like I said, that total has probably increased exponentially in the last 11 years. Yeah. Listener, you might also be familiar with the Pixar Easter egg, uh, A113. Mm-hmm. It's a number that's featured in a lot of Pixar films in different areas, and you'll see it pop up everywhere all over the place. It's also found in the Brave Little Toaster on Rob's apartment door. Oh, wow. A113 was the classroom where all of these legends worked. I did not know that. In Vanity Fair, students recalled room A113 was where many of the character animation classes took place. And they said, CalArts didn't give us the best rooms in the house, shall we say. 
We used to joke that it was like the Haunted Mansion. It had no windows and no door, and you had buzzing fluorescent lights, and it was dead white inside. So to make it less depressing, they put Xeroxes of Disney characters on the walls. But otherwise, <laughs> it was a pretty dreadful place. Oh, it sounds like a nightmare, like children's daycare facility. Horrific. Like, and yet, it sounds terrible. All, all of really the Disney and Pixar magic that we know came from that room. Which they is, were forced to use their imaginations. They had to. They, they had didn't no have a choice. choice. Uh, the Vanity Fair article details all kinds of antics from CalArts, oh, sure. including like the warring factions of the character animation department versus the experimental animation department, which was like motion capture and some of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And apparently they had wild, just absolutely wild Halloween parties. <laughs> oh my God. I, what to I be wouldn't a give. fly on the whitewashed wall. I know. What I wouldn't give to be at one of their Halloween parties. Um, <sighs> I highly recommend going and finding that Vanity Fair article. Listener, I know I said it once before. But man, it was it was a good read. It was a lot of fun. Just drop it in our uh, you know show notes that we never post. Yeah, I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now you're all on board with me, right? I'm strapped We've in. Been through the 1970s where all of these animators were up and coming. You might also recall from some of our um, Oliver and Company episodes that the 1980s is also when Disney was kind of having some trouble. The dark ages. So in 1982, John Lasseter and Glenn Kane had just finished a short. 2D, 3D test film uh, based on the book Where the Wild Things Are. Really? Yes. Laster and producer uh, Thomas L. Wilhite decided they wanted to produce a whole feature with the same technique that they were using. Mm -hmm. And they chose The Brave Little Toaster as their story. Hmm. Uh, this was according to Wikipedia, and it's kind of a bit of a historic moment because it was the first CGI film that John Laster ever pitched. Oh, yeah. I did read that. And he was pitching it to Disney. Mm -hmm. However... Two of Disney's highest level executives at the time, Ed Hansen and President Ron W. Miller, were not enthused. Miller asked about the cost right up front, yeah. and when Lasseter informed him that it wouldn't cost any more, but it also wouldn't cost any less than a traditional animated film, which honestly is kind of surprising to me, um, Miller rejected the pitch. Uh, he was set in his ways, and he argued that the only reason to use computers instead of, you know, hand-drawn animation would be if it were faster or cheaper. When did they make Tron? The 80s. 1982. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they just put a lot of money into making a computer-generated feature film. Yeah, but it, I wild. guess the storyline was different and the fact that there was some live, wasn't there live animation in, or sorry, live action in Tron? A lot, yeah. Yeah, so I think bet. it's it's more the animation and CGI yeah. overlap that caused gotcha. the hesitation. I don't know. Yeah, this would have been 100% CGI versus like 75%. Right. right. I don't know. It's said that just a few minutes after this pitch, Lasseter received a phone call from Hansen where he was brought back into their offices and let go altogether. Oh, wow. Yeah. Supposedly, they already weren't pleased with his allocation of time and resources for the short film that they'd just done. Perhaps also with Tron. I'm not sure what role he had in that. I should have looked it up. But hmm. it didn't go well for Lasseter. And... This just set things in motion for him to move over to Lucasfilm and from there establish Pixar. Wow. So that was the beginning of the rift. Yes. It became Pixar. Exactly. Obviously, Lasseter and Disney continued to have a bit of a tumultuous relationship well into mm -hmm. the 90s and beyond. And also, obviously, when Toy Story changed everything. But that's mm -hmm. another story for another time. I know we'll get to it. Oh, we're going to do uh, Toy Story. <laughs> on, our, on our journeys. For sure. Yeah. I know no one is shocked, but I actually wrote a paper about the history of Pixar itself in a college film class. So <laughs> the Pixar arm of this story, I do know a little bit about. <laughs> so you've done the, the Life of Walt Disney yes. for a public speaking course. Correct. <laughs> and you've done a history of Pixar. 
Yes. For I studied the things I was interested in college. What can I say? <laughs> they, well, when they gave me freedom of like, pick whatever topic you want, yeah. I was like, well, I mean, Oh, okay. that was the most <laughs> dangerous game for <laughs> teachers to play. Whatever it, interests you. The, the gambit of different topics that we had in some of our classes, because it would be like somebody talking about the history of some sports program. And then I'd be like, so Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> That's like when uh, in high school they would say, you can make this a video project. Yeah. Then <laughs> we'd make a movie that. You have the was option. Just pure nonsense. And I hope nobody ever unearths I would, the home movies no, no. that I made in high school. I would love to see your high school video projects. Please do share. I, ha- I know I have a couple that you can see. I would love to. I'll have to find them. Like I said, listener, you might remember from our Oliver and Company episodes that Disney's animation department was not doing so hot in general in the early to mid 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, having been downsized themselves and moved away from the studio, um, it seems like this downturn played a part in so many former Disney animators joining forces for this film, whether they were let go or left due to like corporate politics and frustrations, mm-hmm. even if many of them did find their way back to the mouse eventually. Back to the mouse. While The Brave Little Toaster was set to commence at Disney with a production budget of $18 million, it was then shifted over to an independent production company co-owned by Tom Wilhite after Wilhite requested the project from Miller. As a result, the film was financed as an independent production by Disney, though the budget was reduced to only $5.94 million. I was going to say, this is not an $18 million no, no. project. Yeah, it was ultimately produced by Hyperion Pictures, Will Heights Company, along with the Kushner Lock Company. And then it was also distributed to some degree by Disney. We'll, we'll talk about that later right. um, and how it kind of came to be. But despite the point of this, this portion of the story is despite providing the funds to get it off the ground, Disney was not further involved with the production of the film. Okay. Some people feel that this is what allowed the film to explore the darker, edgier, wouldn't it be fun if places that Disney wouldn't allow it to go. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. But I also question a couple things about that. Number one, how fun was it really? <laughs> it wasn't fun. No, no, it no totally. It wasn't like, a fun time. I could see where like this, this allowed for more dark exploration of the human condition using small appliances. Yes. Um, but it, it did totally lack the fun Disney flair. The heart of it. The heart that Disney gives to everything. Mm-hmm. The heart that, say, Oliver and Company had. Yes. But that's what I was going to say uh, as my second in the list of two things. As we know, Disney is no stranger to the pretty dark. Mm-hmm. But it is kind of interesting to think of what Brave Little Toaster could have or would have been as a full-out Disney film with the name behind it. With all the packaging and the right. ribbons would it have and the colors. Join yeah. their list of pre-Little Mermaid box office crashes. Like... I just don't know. I don't, there's no telling. Because was the world ready for Brave Little Toaster? Probably not. It probably still isn't, in all honesty. <laughs> well, I, I don't know enough about the novella. I'd have to read it, which I said, I tried to find it and I couldn't find it, but you read a summary. I did, yeah. And I, I yeah, there. you can definitely I see- I need a copy of this book. Pieces and parts of it in the film and we'll, yeah, we'll get there. I gotta find it. I gotta read it. Send me, if you guys have it, if anybody out there has it- <laughs> Or <laughs> just like take pictures of each page. Like I just need to see <laughs> screen copy it or whatever, whatever the modern technology is. I feel is. like the summary gets gets me there in terms of what I need to know about it. But I need to know more. I, I apologize, listener, that we're going to be talking about that in part two. You just hate us so much. I With know. so many one star reviews coming our way. <laughs> they tease so much and they just don't give anything. Good. So in terms of the actual production of The Brave Little Toaster, which I know is what we're gathered here today to talk about. The story and character development were rather rushed, according to director and co-writer Jerry Reese, 
who had been mentored as an animator from the age of 16 at Disney Studios by Eric Larson, one of Walt Disney's nine old men, hmm. and was the first student accepted into the CalArts character animation program that I mentioned before. At this time, Jerry had worked on two previous Disney films, The Fox and the Hound and Tron, like you were saying. Hmm. And it's kind of interesting. Jerry still has strong ties to Disney, actually. Um, he directed a record-setting 15 multimedia Disney theme park attractions in Florida, Paris, and Anaheim. Jeez. And aboard the Disney Cruise Line. Wow. For my fellow Disney nerds, hi, Courtney. Hi, Alicia. <laughs> uh, these include... Uh, Sounds Dangerous at Disney's MGM Studios, which I remember. Oh, yeah. Um, the live action sequences of Cranium Command at Epcot. Uh, the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular at Disney's MGM Studios. Uh, Rock and Roller Coaster at Disney's MGM Studios, which is now Disney Hollywood Studios. I'm recognizing this list is also a little dated, <laughs> but at the time it was created, I guess. Yeah. And Walt Disney Studios Paris. Uh, extra Terrestrial Alien Encounter at the Magic Kingdom, which was in the previous location where Stitch's Great Escape was. and Oh, that was the old alien thing. Mm, if you that ever was the look scariest up thing. photos of that, it is ever. terrifying. I think we'll do an episode on that one day because it is we should. real scary. And I have been, I have I have spent a lot of time in that building having worked there mm -hmm. um, and being trained at Stitch. So there are just a lot of things that are spooky about that building. That scared me to death. Me too. The alien encounter thing. Yeah, oh my it's terrifying. God. <laughs> He also directed uh, Michael and Mickey at Disney MGM Studios uh, and the new Cinemagic show at Walt Disney Studios Paris. Nice. He also directed the pre-ride film at Disney's Animal Kingdom ride, Dinosaur. Oh my God, yes. Love. And I feel like I quote that ride and that that pre-show, I feel like I quote it all the time. You can't talk about it, Kaylin. That's proprietary. <laughs> That's proprietary. That's <laughs> Proprietary. So good. If you know, you know. So Jerry received a call from Will Height soon after the project left Disney asking him to develop, write, and direct. Um, so they put a lot on the shoulders of Mr. Reese, but clearly he, yeah. or Reese, his name is spelled R-E-E-S. So forgive Reese. me if I jump around in pronunciation pronunciation um pronunciation <laughs> but he he definitely oh, we're gonna get to the pronunciation in part two <laughs> oh, so God. many so many puns people really do hate us at this point part two part um, two part two part two part two part two but enjoy part one while you're here listener. <laughs> um but jerry clearly seemed to have the chops having been like i said mentored from disney's best at such an early age yeah but he worked on developing the story and worked with uh, Joe Ramph, who I also mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. to co-write the screenplay. Uh, Jerry said, it was a big shift from our previous experience. Instead of a couple of years, which is the studio standard, we had four weeks. For what? For what? The story and character development. Four weeks? Yeah. This was, yeah, story development. We can't even four get weeks. off a podcast episode in four weeks. I know. It's <laughs> terrifying to think about. God, that's awful. He said, we worked on index cards together madly quickly for long days. Hmm. Then Joe started storyboarding. And as we finished that first phase and while I was writing, we both actually started storyboarding then. Hmm. And when it came yeah. to the script, I would go back to the word processor and get a couple of hours at a time to keep ahead of all the rest of the process. On a few of the scenes, Joe would go ahead and make preliminary notes of possible dialogue, character things that we could feel out. So they were making it together, writing it in real time as they were storyboarding it, as they were developing the characters, as they were, mm. you know, coming up with the dialogue. Like it was all happening on top of each other. Yeah. And when I read this listener, it made the whole thing make so much more sense to me yeah. just from a creativity production standpoint, because normally this takes so many people 
such a long time. And it was mm. mostly just Jerry and Joe at first getting it all out there, you know, kind of putting it down on paper. For like a month. Yeah. The storyboards were designed by Jerry and Joe along with Alex Mann and Daryl Rooney. And when animators ran out of pages to storyboard, we sat down and wrote more of the script. <laughs> <laughs> it just blows my mind. And I have to take a moment to say how cool it is that Jerry Reese took on so much of this project personally from writing to storyboarding to directing. Like he was doing it all. all and it, yeah. that was one of the things that that Walt wanted from Cal Arts as a as an institution was to teach people not not just one element of it, not just how to animate, but how to do it all. Right. And Jerry was the, one of the earliest products of that. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So speaking of putting his whole heart into it, his whole life into it for this period of time. Yeah. The crew worked on pre-production for six months in L.A. in 1985. And then a staff of 10 people moved to Taiwan with Jerry Reese for another six months to work with Wang Film Productions Company Limited in Taipei, headed by James Wang, for the principal animation. And then they returned for a third six-month work period for post-production in the U.S., Jerry's wife, Rebecca, was the film's directing animator, which I think is really cool. And she taught classes to the Taiwanese animators while they were abroad. There's actually um, some footage of their trips on YouTube that was uploaded oh, by a crew nice. member, if you're interested in that. It isn't anything that's like super put together, but they 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 have footage of their yeah. offices where they were animating and just like their escapades out on the streets of uh, Taiwan. And I definitely want to see this. It's just cool. Yeah. yeah, it's very, it's obviously, it's just, straight from the 80s and all of them hanging out and it's it's you pretty got, cool. Yeah, you got to send it to me, yeah. We'll do. Basically, every single day they had to do what would normally be done across a two-week period at Disney. Every day? Um, the color stylist was veteran Disney animator A. Kendall O'Connor, a member of Disney's feature animation department from its first feature, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Mm. Um, animators Kirk Wise and Kevin Lima went on to animate and co-direct films of the Disney Renaissance, such as The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Tarzan. Uh, character designer Chris Buck directed Tarzan and was a co-director of the Frozen movies. What? Effects animator uh, Mark Dindalk directed Disney's The Emperor's New Groove and Chicken Little, uh, as well as Warner Brothers' Cats Don't Dance, which I talk about wow, all the time. All the time. Yeah. Character designer Rob Minkoff, we've brought him up before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Minkoff. Yeah. They actually he, they actually based the character of Rob, the look of him as a child and as a grown person, the master. Yeah. Uh-huh. They actually based that character on him <laughs> and gave him his name. That's fun. The same Rob Minkoff that went on to direct The Lion King. Wow. It's just so much like self-referential yes. <laughs> stuff. I, I love that. It's pretty great. And this film, clearly, it served as a proving ground for some of the best animators and thinkers and creatives in the business. So did you say that there were people from Snow White who were still alive? Mm -hmm. That's like 40, 50 years later, right? Color stylist, A. Kendall O'Connor. Double check my facts here. No, no, I'm not. I'm not questioning you. I'm just. I'm just confirming because I think I'm stupid. Kendall O'Connor lived from 1908 to 1998. Oh, my God. Mm Mm-hmm. Please kill me long before that ever happens. <laughs> I do not want to be 90 years old. No, hey, but he was kicking. He was doing, still doing a lot. Not to be insensitive. And, but you have to pass the knowledge along somehow. That's true. And I'm grateful that there were there were a ton of Disney veterans that were teaching at CalArts, and that's what Walt always wanted. I do really appreciate, they, they could see the future. They were yeah. very invested in teaching the next generation. That's something that is lost. Now. In most industries in general, yes. Completely lost. Unless it's your child, it's lost. 
Yeah. And even then, it's rare. Mm-hmm. Agreed. People don't care about the future. They just want to keep digging for oil. As I was clicking around the IMDb, despite having used overseas crews pretty extensively, I did see many, many additional crew members, uh, sound designers to storyboard artists with other non-Disney credits that we know well. I talked about Cats Don't Dance, Once Upon a Forest, hmm. like it's all there. Yeah. Um, Fern Gully. We have said it before and we will say it again. The world was small at that time in entertainment yep. and especially in animation. Yeah. According to a quote from his website, Jerry Reese believed that personality could really build the story. He took a moment on his website to describe these characters, which was cute. And I'm going to quote directly from him because who better to talk about it than the director of the thing? Mm-hmm. He said, the film has appliances in it, and we decided that the lamp was a little bit dim. The vacuum tended to hold things inside and not let them out. Nice. And he has a nervous breakdown later because of that. <laughs> the radio is an entertainer at all costs. The toaster is very warm, and everybody sees themselves in that character. Uh-huh. And the blanket, without a child to hug it, instead of being a security blanket, is an insecure blanket. That's just so good. God, that's so nice. <laughs> Once the characters were clearly defined, the scenes began to almost write themselves. You knew what yeah. they would or wouldn't say. There was certainly room to develop and let that evolve, but you knew what is in their nature and what isn't, and that builds. Hmm. And I think that, that that's really a great description of the film, and we'll get to kind of our overall thoughts and the way that we feel about it. And while I... I'm not really being shy about the fact that this isn't my favorite thing that we've covered. I can't help but have appreciation for what they were doing at the time and how they were doing it. Mm -hmm. It took a lot of creativity and a lot of imagination, but they were pulling from these truths, you know, that they had established. Mm -hmm. And I do think that they did that successfully, whether or not the film is uh, (laughs) super warm and fuzzy for me to return to. Yeah, the end result is just quite depressing. Yeah. It's an accomplishment, though. It really Um, is. And one of the big reasons for that, I think, one of the big reasons for this overarching, like, melancholic vibe, which normally is totally my jam and I love, but in this case, I think it just goes a tad too far for my liking. Yeah. I think one of the biggest reasons for that is the music. Okay. So pulling some more knowledge from Wikipedia, the sound effects were not from a library, as we've heard from some of these other... Um, animated classics. Yeah. They were instead exclusively made Foley sounds oh, with nice. various real world objects around LA being used in the score. Hmm. This technique was used because uh, Jerry Reese wanted to create new characters with new sounds. Uh, apparently the sound mixers, including former Disney studio mixer, Sean Murphy, who recorded the score, asked how they were supposed to do their job due to the film being animated. And Jerry said they should mix it like they would mix any other film instead of thinking of it like it was a cartoon. Sure, yeah. Um, Because like we've talked about before with Foley, Mm -hmm. Foley art is done for live action films too. I think people kind of forget that and and probably primarily for live action films at that time, especially. Mm -hmm. That is an art that makes the live action films that we love sound so good. We talked about it with Page Master. Absolutely. And he said, treat this like you would treat a live action film just the same way. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that does come through as well. Yeah, we got into that big time with Oliver and company too. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So I've been excited to talk about this with with Christian because it was fascinating to me. Yeah. Guess who composed the score? Howard Shore. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. No. So David Newman. Oh no, I did know. I saw his name actually in the credits. I'm dumb. My short-term memory I, no, is mine absolute garbage. Yeah, mine is too. If you'd asked me this tomorrow, I probably couldn't tell you. My working memory is a trash can I would leave on the street for a week. Exactly. Exactly. The name Newman might be familiar to you, listener, even if you don't know David. 
because David Newman is a cousin of the famed Pixar composer Randy Newman. Newman. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Yeah, Randy Newman. (laughs) But David and Randy apparently descended from a huge family of musicians and composers. Hmm. From the late 70s into the early 80s, David played violin on most of John Williams' L.A. scoring sessions and credits him for learning so much about film and music composition. Mm. His first film to work on was Tim Burton's short film Frankenweenie in 1984. God, I love that short film. He worked on many Danny DeVito movies, including Matilda in 1996. (laughs) He also scored The Flintstones in 1994, Mighty Ducks. The Nutty Professor, Paradise, and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Can I just keep saying that I love all these movies? Yes. Uh, Ice Age. I love Ice Age. And 102 Dalmatians. Well, I don't remember that one. I need to say that properly. And 102 Dalmatians. (laughs) 102. 102. 102 Dalmatians. 102 Dalmatians, um, which I, I like that movie, actually. He received an Academy Award nomination for the score to the animated Don Bluth film Anastasia in 1997, following his father, who scored the 1956 live-action version. Of Anastasia? Yes. Anastasia, wow. So David Newman wrote the score for The Brave Little Toaster over a 50-hour period, which included embarking on a flight to Japan to record with an orchestra in Medea Hall. Wow. I'm quoting from a couple different sources here, Wikipedia and... um, Jerry Ray's website, but Newman's score for this movie was one of his earlier works, and apparently it's one that he felt very close to and very proud of. Mm. But he did not view it as a cheerful one and decided to give the film a dramatic score to reinforce the serious nature of the film's themes. Well, that I say to that, duh, it was quite dark. Explains many <laughs> things. Just, yeah, definitely sheds light on many things, ironically. Wow. Jerry Reese admired his rich and classical style and chose him so that the film wouldn't have cartoon music. Mm. He wove death, joy, love, loss, and struggle into the work. Mm. Newman's composing style was influenced by his philosophy that behind every chord of joy lies an element of sadness. Mm. Whether that's the knowledge that it won't last forever, the knowledge that it's a facade for a deeper, inaccessible emotion, or that joy itself comes from sadness. Damn. What is that... (laughs) just rings so true it does it does for me. what is it you always say about uh beauty in which there is no i've quoted it like 10 times yes i'm just saying i just think he's right yes it's it's the same it's the same thing i think he's right too man he used lush strings in the opening scenes to convey a sense of longing Hmm. as the characters are introduced the score becomes more lively and each character has their own theme like we see pretty often influenced by their personalities oh light motif (laughs) a light motif if you will if you will and we'll talk about them when we get there (laughs) but the film contains four original songs city of light it's a b movie cutting edge and worthless Mm mm-hmm These songs were written by Van Dyke Parks, renowned composer from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, whose first paid gig was arranging the bare necessities for the 1967 Disney film, The Jungle Book. We know a few people from Hattiesburg. Yeah, we have friends over there in the Mississippi. In the sip. So Jerry felt uncomfortable, quoting, with the full Broadway book musical approach. Hmm. And his philosophy was that the song should be part of the action and plot without stopping for a big production number, which I understand... I do. I get it. Yeah. Um, He specifically wanted the characters to be able to break out in song whenever they wanted to, similar to the films of the Hollywood Golden Age. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be hypercritical, but I do think (laughs) there are films that do that in a better way. I'm not overly impressed with the music, and I think that is the first time I've said that. I mean, the score, I fully appreciate for what it is, but as far as like the 
songs being memorable. I told Christian this mm-hmm. listener. I didn't remember any of them. Uh, and I remember lyrics. I I yeah. sing them for years and I, I know all the lyrics to all of my favorite childhood film soundtracks. Mm-hmm. And this one just didn't stick. But I don't know if that's because it's not great or if it's because I, baby Kaylin, just needed to kind of offload that trauma. And she was like, nope, not going to yeah. keep this one. Your, your standard know. for good music is different from mine. Yeah. I didn't love the music my first time watching it. But I have found myself unable to stop thinking of the music. Wow. Two songs specifically. Um, City of Light and It's a B Movie. Okay. See, I think Worthless is the only one that I actually, rem- like when I saw it, I like recalled it. And I was like, oh, yes, I remember that there is a song here. The other ones, I didn't remember that there was a song there. And I don't know if that's a product of this whole strategy to like not stop. It could be. Action. It could be. Because it, it doesn't, they don't necessarily continue plot. Which we're, we'll get more into. And I will say, the the whole Chop Shop idea and that whole song, mm-hmm. while I appreciate the concept for them and like I get I get it, I've, I understand it intellectually, like why this is like funny or ironic or existential, you know? Mm. I will say that that song in particular made a lot more sense to me and I found it a little bit funnier after I learned the history of CalArts and the way that they were all kind of just goofing off together um, in school. And this was one of their first forays into doing that in the real world. Mm -hmm. I could just see that like art house cynicism in it. And that made me like it a little more. I get that. Not in a pretentious way at all, but just in like a memorable way. I guess it made me feel a lot of very deep emotions and I got, mm. it was, it hit me hard. I don't know why Man, it hit me hard. It's the whole thing is hard hitting and I, yeah, I haven't been able to stop thinking about the movie. <laughs> I won't say <laughs> yeah. that much. I'll wrap up today's conversation with some notes on the film's release. And later in part two, we'll talk a little more about how it was received, but in terms of just how it got to us mm-hmm. as children in the nineties. Yeah. The Brave Little Toaster had its Los Angeles premiere on July 13th, 1987. And due to the determination of the producers, it also premiered in various festivals during the Los Angeles International Animation Celebration in 1987 and the Sundance Film Festival in 1988. And here's your trivia fact along with that. Oh, I read this one. This made history, yeah, as the first original animated film ever exhibited at Sundance, Mm -hmm. which is pretty funny. And it it makes sense. I, I totally get it. I totally see it. And it remained the only original animated film until 2001 when Waking Life went to Sundance. Nice. Yeah. And due to some strange deals and difficulty with distribution and changes in ownership, uh, it never had a true theatrical run. And it it instead premiered on the Disney Channel on February 27th, 1988. Hmm. And it ran in limited theatrical airings at art house facilities across the U.S. But... The director, Jerry Reese, believes that most people discovered the film through syndication on the Disney Channel or, like me, through home video releases. Right. In July 1991, Walt Disney Home Video released the film to home video format uh, via VHS and Laserdisc, (laughs) which is most definitely how it came to be part of my childhood. (laughs) We're seeing a pattern here. That's like most of the movies that got re-released then is how we saw them Mm -hmm. somehow. And I guess, I don't know why exactly. I don't know. You know, I spent time in front of the TV, but I don't feel like my parents were always looking to put me in front of the TV. It's just we we had those VHS. Even now, I probably still my parents still have the VHS somewhere. Mm-hmm. But 
yeah, those re-releases were key. I think there was just a lot of there were a lot of commercials in those days that were promoting, you know, the home video releases, home video releases of yeah. things, especially mm-hmm. Disney because there were so many. I guess so. Yeah. So, I, re- I I also read that the reason, really, the only reason that it didn't win Sundance is because, like, if they picked an animated film to win. They would lose all credibility. Yeah, they didn't. Yeah, they didn't want to give it to. An they didn't want to give it film. to an animated film. Mm-hmm. And there's like people think that the reason why Sundance is Sundance now is because they did not pick Brave Little Toaster, wow. the quote unquote kids movie. I mean, I don't see it that way. And clearly, they don't anymore either. No, no, no. I don't think. But but yeah, this probably should have won because they picked a totally unmemorable movie mm-hmm. over BLT. Yeah, which I can say this one is memorable, whether you want uh, to remember it or not. Well, that's the thing. That's what um, um, Chuck Palahniuk says. He doesn't want to write good books. He doesn't want to write bad books. He just wants to write books you can't stop thinking about. And I respect that. I, I definitely do. Especially for things like this. It's not really good or bad. It's just a weird, warped funhouse mirror that you can't stop looking right. into. And that, I mean, even as a child, that's what I recognized in it was I can't stop watching mm-hmm. this much like, you know, Courage and, and other spooky stuff that we were watching at the time i just knew this is odd i can't look away from it i don't know why most of these things i can't stop looking at but i really don't want to watch this one again but (laughs) i have to this is one i have to for you this is a great opportunity yeah for you for you guys you would like to rewatch it watch it with us to check it out before we release part two so that you can be you can be in just as much psychological distress (laughs) as we are (laughs) yeah god and if it messes with you you're not alone. Nope. You know, reach out, tell us what it's doing to you. We're going to take our time in part two. I think we, we've we already kind of said part two will be probably a bit longer. Potentially, Just yeah. because we're going to take our time with it. Mm-hmm. We want to really dig into every element of it, not just because it's our most requested movie night, but because it's, like I said, the most one of the most notorious uh, children's movies from that time period that people yes people have a hard time watching and they don't really want to think about it anymore mm-hmm. which is yeah it's what we're you know it's what we're all about here is figuring that stuff out yeah. so it's you know kind of stretching flexing <laughs> those muscles on our part mm-hmm. but it's also you know we still need to talk about the cast which I haven't gotten to talk about at all yet yep. but I think it's going to make make more sense when we're hearing yep. about the plot and we learn what these characters go through to talk about the folks that brought them to life. Oh, you know what? Let's make it three parts. <laughs> Let's just do it. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't think I can do three parts. Of we'll see how it shakes out. Mercy. We'll see how it shakes out next time. But yeah, I do hope that's that's really what I have uh, for today. But I hope that this episode can serve as a foundation. Oh, yeah. Because like I continue to say, the knowledge of knowing how it came together really helps me to understand what the creators were thinking <laughs> and not in like a what were you thinking kind of way, but a little bit in that way and also a little bit you know why they cared about pursuing certain themes and ideas yes so absolutely that's what we're all about yeah we love it we love doing this yeah um so for our patreon we want to say big big thanks to Alyssa g and sarah w for giving to our patreon thank you Alyssa. thank you sarah we appreciate you yeah super awesome and if you guys want to hear some bonus content, help us keep doing this, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash podcast, and it's $5 a month or whatever you want to give. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'm going to do a reading of this fairy tale that this whole movie's based on. Um, and we have some other super fun bonus content out there. Things that we also can't stop thinking about. <laughs> yeah, things that we can't <laughs> that stop. need an outlet. We just about. put them there. 
And uh, you can also find us on social media. That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Yeah, follow us on our socials. We love hearing from you there. Like we, we keep saying um, this week. I guess we keep saying it today because this week has been an especially like nice week in our DMs, I guess. Mm-hmm. We've just gotten some really like some really good messages that we appreciate. So It helps us keep doing this with confidence. Every Yeah, every little bit of that. Honestly, some of those messages came during some like difficult times for me as you know guys I'm always going through something but also you guys make it a lot easier to go into the depths of these catacombs of memories and uh catacombs and history honestly and the history is what helps me get through it so for sure we love you <laughs> we love you yeah send us an email that's pretty dark podcast gmail.com or otherwise just say hey I just want to quickly say thanks to Kaylin for all my sweet birthday gifts. It was my birthday recently. Aww, yeah. Like I said, we took our trip to Monroeville. That was a belated thing we did. Mm-hmm. Really great. We saw the To Kill a Mockingbird play that they put on. That yes. The, the Mockingbird yeah. Company was founded by Harper Lee herself back in 91. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a memorable thing that I'm really glad we did. Pretty fun. And I have this super dope shirt. <laughs> it's a Ban the Fascist, Save the Books t-shirt. Yes. I thought it couldn't be um, more appropriate. I love because I'm all about saving the band books. Yeah, we do love our band books around here. And uh, you got me an Are You Afraid of the Dark book. I did, yeah. It's a campfire companion. We're we're pumped about this book Mm. because we think it's going to help us um, as we move forward with our next Are You Afraid of the Dark season binges eventually. It's really just a lot of the stuff that we found online that was like confirmed in a book. Yeah. That we probably should have gotten it two years ago. Yeah, we should (laughs) have. Definitely should have gotten it prior to uh, all the research. But If nothing else, before we jump back into season two for Are You Afraid of the Dark, we will do a part, or a season one recap, where we read anything that we missed from this book. Yeah, we could do. And Mm -hmm. we'll just do, like, talk about what we discovered and uncovered, and then everything that we missed from this book. And it'll be (laughs) awesome. And um, we'll feel like real podcasters who know what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. And that's the other thing. Like, we don't claim to be... I mean, sometimes we say, you know, we we have our own opinions on things, obviously. But we don't claim to be, like, reinventing the wheel when it comes to the history, I think. The history is just kind of there if you want to find it. And we are honored if, Mm -hmm. like, we are your vehicle to that history. You know, if you want to be learning it with us. Yeah. That's really cool. That's really... we. I've said before to Kaylin, I really just want to be, like the bottom of the funnel where everything just <laughs> comes down to collects. one point <laughs> everything collects here on that's pretty dark with us and you guys so anyway we're just we're having so much fun just trying our hardest yeah we appreciate it we appreciate you mm-hmm. and we're here you know 51 episodes later 51. just keeping on keeping on keeping on because it's we it is fun at the end of the day a lot of things we talk about are depressing but it's a good time <laughs> when we're doing it together so mm-hmm. thank you christian Thank you, listener. Thank you, Kaylin, for all the research. Anytime. Can't wait for part two. Can't wait for part three. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> part 10, though, is when it really gets good. <laughs> Can't wait for part 15. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next time. Read a band book. Read band books. Talk to strangers, but don't trust them. Okay. Enrich your lives. Don't put yourself in danger. Yeah, that's fair. But put yourself in danger by reading band books. <laughs> Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark, written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. 
Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So, until next time, sweet dreams, everyone. <laughs>